my dad tells me that love is like an act. What I think love is, is what you're passionate about. A strong feeling that you have for someone that you care for and respect. I think love is when someone is caring and compassionate. I would say that love is putting someone else before yourself. Love to me is unconditionally caring about somebody. God is the first thing that comes to mind when I think of love. Well, I want to say hi to everybody in this room, hi to everybody at all of our campuses, people joining us online. So glad you're here for this message. We're, we're talking about love. First week we looked at how uh, love is what matters above anything else. That uh, if you win at love, you will not fail at life. If you fail at love, you cannot win at life. Everything without love is nothing. That's what Paul says. And then last week we looked at how love is patient and how hurry is the great enemy of love in our day. You can't love people in a hurry. So all week, we've been working on ruthlessly eliminating hurry from our lives, living in relaxed, unrushed, unfrenzied, patient love. Is that going good for everybody? Somebody was uh, asking me, impatience is so deeply rooted in my life, can we have one more week to work on it? And of course, the answer is no. We got to get through this series, so keep up. Uh, but Paul says, love is patient, love is kind. And these are teachings from the most revered, cherished, often quoted influential description of love in the history of humanity. Paul's letter to the church at Corinth, 1 Corinthians chapter 13. And a lot of people think of those words only as beautiful poetry to be read at weddings. They think of those words as being soft, and like something you might find on a Hallmark card, and that the church at Corinth probably got a real warm, fuzzy feeling as they heard that chapter being read to them. But au contraire. Uh, I actually want to suggest that by the time Paul got to the words of this beautiful chapter that we're going to look at today, people at Corinth would have responded just the opposite. This, what we're going to look at this week, uh, these words were actually a quite deliberate, quite provocative slap in the face to the church there, and they will be a challenge to us as well. Now, what prompted Paul to write to the church at Corinth, and this is quite common letters in the New Testament, is that there were real serious problems going on. People at Corinth were messed up. They were uh, indulging in attitudes and behaviors, the way they would treat other people, uh, social climbing and going after status and money and so on. Corinth was real big around that. That was wrecking community. And there were three problems in particular that Paul kind of hammers them for. He writes, for example, in chapter 3 to the church, you are still worldly. Those are fighting words. To be worldly means to be opposed to God and his kingdom and his way. For since there is envy and quarreling among you, are you not worldly? And he has a lot to say about how envy led them into rivalry and factions and ego and then into a second related problem that he talks about numerous times. So then, no more boasting about human leaders. Or he asks a question, why do you boast? Or he makes the statement, your boasting is not good. The word boast is used 37 times in the New Testament. But Corinth is kind of like ground zero for boasting in the ancient world to the extent that Paul uses the word for boasting in his letters to Corinth more than it's used in the rest of the New Testament put together. And so there's huge amount of envy, huge amount of boasting, and all this reflects a third problem, a deep inner problem 
that Paul describes with using an even rarer word. This word is used only when he writes to Corinth in all of the New Testament, but he uses it in this letter repeatedly. He talks about how when they become spiritually mature, then you will not be puffed up. But because they're not mature, some of you have become puffed up. And to make it real clear, and you are puffed up. And then he says, but knowledge puffs up while love builds up. Puffed up is a real colorful term in the Greek in which Paul wrote. Uh, it's like inflating a balloon that wants to look real big and impressive on the outside, but inside it's just a bunch of hot air waiting to get popped. Envy is something you do. Boasting is something you do. Puffed up is something that you are. And Paul hits them with these problems, these words, over and over and over in this letter. You envy, you boast, you're puffed up. You envy, you boast, you're puffed up. And so now we come to this beautiful, inspiring, feel-good lollipop passage called the love chapter. Paul says, though I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but I have not love, I'm a clanging gong or a resounding cymbal. Though I have a gift of prophecy and can move mountains and fathom all mysteries and knowledge, but have not love, though I give away all my possessions and, and my body to be given to the flames, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient, love is kind. And to everybody at Corinth, these are beautiful words. They're just basking in them. And then he puts the hammer down when he talks about, well, love is not. He says, and here's what love doesn't do. Love does not envy. Love does not boast. Love is not puffed up. In other words, what is love not like, Corinth? Well, it's not like you. In fact, love is the opposite of you. There was an old TV sitcom called Seinfeld, and there was a character in it named George Costanza. Anybody ever know George Costanza? And he's like this loser, such a loser that he realized one day, my life is nothing like what I wanted. My every decision is wrong. My every instinct is wrong. It's all wrong. So he lands on a new life strategy called do the opposite. Just whatever you would normally do, do the opposite. And it works out great. Beautiful women are attracted to him. Um, finance and success begins to come to him just from doing the opposite. Paul is not being subtle here. Paul is saying to Corinth, in this chapter, you are like the George Costanza of churches. You are like the opposite of what love is supposed to be. And in case anybody misses it, not likely, the next two items that he has chewed Corinth out for are that they are self-seeking, uh, uh, egocentric, he uses that precise term, and then that they dishonor one another because of all this ladder climbing and so. And so the next two items in 1 Corinthians 13 that love is not are, love does not dishonor others, love is not self-seeking. In other words, deliberately, not once, not twice, but five times, Paul says, love is not like you, not like you, not you, not you, not you. And Paul is saying this in love. He is saying this not in spite of, but because of the fact that he loves the people of course, Loves them too much to let them wallow in the misery of an unloving life. Love, see, is not primarily about making people feel good. He doesn't want them to miss out on what matters most, which is growing towards the people that God intended them to be and building a community that is the opposite of the way our world apart from God works. Now it's going to demand a strategy of do the opposite. That's kind of Jesus' message, do the opposite. So 
For the rest of this talk, I want to focus on that first great knot. Love does not envy. And here's why. Envy in many, many ways is not just a sin. It's kind of the opposite of love. A person of love feels enhanced by the well-being of others. A person of envy feels diminished by the well-being of others. When I love somebody, I constantly want to build them up. When I envy somebody, I compare myself to them, and I actually want them to be torn down. I want to outdo them. Now, no one can get rid of envy by trying really hard not to envy. That is never the way of spiritual transformation. Uh, envy can only be gotten rid of as it is replaced with the power of love. When love is present, there's just not room for envy to grow. And the place to begin is ruthless honesty. How many people here really wrestle with envy? Okay, that's what I thought. Hardly anybody at all. Uh, one of the great things about living in the Bay Area is that, thank God, with the help of technology and education, we have basically defeated envy. People never compare themselves with other people. Not here. There's no concern about appearance or image management or being smarter. People here live with modest spirits and contented, quiet hearts. Thank God in the Bay Area, given our vast education and technology and vocational opportunities, we have defeated envy. Just demonstrated by this room right here. But that's not my story. I have a rich history of envy. Usually, uh, people who do a lot of studying this will tell you, we don't envy distant, famous people that are part of another world. We envy people in our own world, people that we're close enough up to that, that uh, it hurts us when we see them doing better than us. And that's been true with me. I will, just for your own amusement, give you a list of some of the people I have envied. People who are more athletic than me. People who are smarter than me. Guys who are better looking than me, that had cuter girlfriends than me, actually, that just had a girlfriend at all. Weightlifters, for obvious reasons. Football players, musicians, people who are more extroverted than me. People who are better pastors, better speakers, better writers, better leaders than me. Parents of perfect families with perfect children and perfect pets who go on perfect vacations and move from success to success. People who get tanned. People who are great at confrontation, who never pout or use the silent treatment when they're mad, they just get more articulate. Movers and shakers with perfect hair and perfect resumes and perfect clothes and seem to do it all effortlessly. People who never break a sweat. People who have it all together. And if you are here today and you don't have a problem with envy, I envy you too. I envy, but then because I am puffed up inside, I deny my envy. I pretend like I do not envy. I pretend like really I'm above envy. I boast, but I'm careful to disguise it because I'm a pastor. So I try to do it in clever ways that make it look like I'm humble, but I'm really not. I'm doing this. Now, I was talking to my sister Barbie some time ago about how a very well-known person in my line of work, somebody in my profession, uh, was in my point of view really badly behaved, just a bad guy going on and on about this in, in quite severe ways. And finally, my sister said to me, you know, Johnny, I found that when I find myself feeling judgmental towards somebody, usually underneath the judgmentalism is envy. I judge them to make myself feel better because deep down inside, I envy them. Usually, if I'm really judgmental like this, underneath it is envy. And I said, I don't remember asking for your opinion. <laughs> Love does not envy. 
Now, it's really important to understand, Paul in this passage is not giving a series of commands. He's not saying, do this, don't do this. He is describing what love is like. Envy is the opposite of love. Actually, in a way that even most other sins are not. Greed is a sin. I might be greedy. I may want just as much money as you got. But if I envy you, I don't just want me to have more. I want you to have less. I want you to be diminished. I want something bad to be true of you. Samuel Roberts was a 19th century British poet. And he was at a gathering of people who were all praising a duke that they knew. Because he had good looks and talent and wealth and a promising future. And in a brief pause, Roberts said, thank God he has bad teeth. <laughs> now, that's envy. If you got everything else, I hope you got bad teeth. I hope you got bad something. And the wrong kind of competitiveness creeps in so quickly. We're in a series on love. And I was thinking about this adventure for our church, that we want to be a loving church. And no kidding, my first thought was we should make it our goal to be the most loving church in the world. But then, of course, we'd have to compare ourselves to every other church. And if any other church got more loving than us, that would threaten our status as the most loving church in the world. Envy is such a sneaky thing. In some ways, uh, envy is incredibly contemporary in our day. There's a researcher, Alexandra Samuel, and she's documented the impact of social media on envy. Because we now have more access to more successes by more people, people like us, than ever before in history, and they all seem to be recording their triumphs, it seems like everybody has better jobs, better ideas for decorating, better vacations, better kids, better dining experiences. The more time people spend on social media, the more envy they experience. And envy is such a miserable thing, and yet we do it to ourselves. At the same time, envy is so old and so subtle and so central that the first time the word sin is mentioned in the Bible, it is a story about envy. It goes so deep. It's the opposite of love. Cain and Abel were the first brothers. God invented family brotherhood for love. But Cain did not love his little brother. We're told in a very uh, compact passage, they both bring their offerings to God. Abel apparently brings the best that he has, the choice portions, the firstborn of his flocks and, and, and herds. And, and Cain's kind of apparently going through the motions. And so Abel knew in a spiritual intimacy with God, favor with God that Cain did not. And that was painful for Cain, but the pain did not prompt Cain to look at his own heart or his own motives, which it could have. He decided that his problem was not him. His problem was his brother. Every time he looks at Abel, he feels bad about himself. And so the thought occurs to him, what if there were no Abel? And God tries to help him. Such a fascinating passage. God says to him, Cain, why are you angry? Why are you downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you. But you must rule over it. Uh, in, in John Steinbeck's book, East of Eden, which is a kind of contemporary retelling of the Cain and Abel story, 
There's a fabulous passage where these ancient Chinese scholars discover this passage and they pour over it and finally come to the conclusion that there is in it a great offer to the human race. Sin is crouching at your door. It's like a beast. It's like a living thing that wants you, but thou mayest rule over it. You might not. It's not inevitable. It's possible. And God gives us the freedom and he poses these questions to Cain. Why are you angry? Why are you downcast? And then it's so fascinating. Cain is silent. If Cain had answered God, if he had confessed his envy, just confessed it to himself and to his brother and to his God, he could have been saved. But the silence of Cain was his doom. And envy destroyed his soul and his brother. And God said in an unspeakably poignant and painful passage after the murder, the blood of your brother cries out to me from the ground. And you think of the heart of God. Of course, God made the ground. And God loved the ground. And God made his brother Abel, and God loved Abel. And the ground was not made to receive the blood of one of God's children, but it's been receiving that for a long time now. And God says, the blood of your brother cries out to me from the ground. What must it be like to be God? What must that pain be like? And from Cain and Abel, a green thread of envy runs all the way through the Bible. If you know the Bible, you will know some of these stories. Sarah, the very beginning, the mother of the people of God, envies Hagar, her child. And Isaac, the promised son of Abraham and his brother Ishmael, the story of envy. And then Jacob and Esau, the next generation. And Leah and Rachel. And then Joseph and all of his brothers. And then Miriam and Aaron are jealous of their brother Moses. Ahab covets Naboth's vineyard. Paul says, some people preach the gospel for crying out loud. They preach the gospel out of envy and rivalry. And that goes on today. I know about that. One day, a man named Jesus started a community where his plan was to do the opposite of envy. And of course, you know, people who are following him, they don't know about that. Two of them, James and John, come up to him one day and say, Jesus, granted to us one to sit in your left hand and one to sit at your right when you come into your kingdom. In the Gospel of Matthew, we're told they actually had their mommy ask for them. And Jesus says, can you drink the cup? I will drink. Oh, yeah, sure, no problem. And the other ten disciples hear about this, and they're furious. Uh, you know, not because uh, James and John did something wrong, but because they thought it up first. And the other ten are thinking, man, that's where I wanted to be. And Jesus shuts them all up. You know, the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever... So strange. Whoever wants to become great must become a servant. Whoever wants to be first must be last. Who teaches that? Not Corinth, not Rome. Just as the Son of Man 
did not come to be served, which great people do, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. In other words, hey guys, here's the plan. Do the opposite. Your every instinct is wrong. It's not working out real well for our earth. The blood of every brother and sister cries out from the ground. So let's do something opposite. Make our lives a joyful exercise in trying to serve, enhance, ennoble, equip, give to the lives of other people. Now, you can't stop envying by trying really hard to stop envying. Spiritual maturity is not envy management. It's not through gritted teeth, repressing and stifling feelings, so I'm miserable inside. But envy can be removed by love. Where love is present, where love is present, see, there's just no room for envy to take root. You know, it's got to put down roots in the human heart, but a loving heart just has no place for envy to get rooted. Little picture of this. A couple weeks ago, some of you may remember my daughter Laura gave the sermon, and afterwards somebody came up and said, Your daughter gave a wonderful sermon. You know what I said? I said, Thank you. Why did I say that? I didn't write that sermon. I didn't deliver that sermon. It had nothing to do with me. I had nothing to do with it. It's because I have such a bond with her. She's family. I identify with her in such a way that when she wins, I feel like I win. When she does well, I feel proud. Somebody came up and said, We wish she could speak more often. In fact, we'd rather hear her than we'd rather hear you. And it made me happy inside because I love her, because she's my family. If everybody were in my family, I would be enhanced by the well-being of everybody, and I would not be diminished or envious of anybody. That's kind of the plan, see? One family. It's not that we try really hard not to envy. It's that envy is just uprooted by love. You could think of it like this. All of us experience this to some extent. There are people in what might be called my circle of oneness. Uh, uh, could be my family or real close friends or folks that I admire a lot, identify with. In some deep way, it's like we're one. They do well, I automatically rejoice. They hurt, I suffer. And then there are people in what might be called my circle of rivals. And with them, it's the opposite. If they do well, I feel diminished. If they go south, have problems, I kind of feel a little better about myself. And Jesus' plan is, just take those people who are currently in your circle of rivals and bring them into your circle of oneness. One family. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. It's that simple. So this week, love is patient, love is kind, does not envy, don't look at other people in your life as rivals for you to outdo. Just practice with God's help, looking at the people in my life as people Jesus loves. How could I help? To whom may I show kindness? Do the opposite. A family therapist named Jim Roberts was visiting his son's fourth grade class when the teacher initiated a game called Balloon Stomp. Simple game. Each child had a balloon tied to their leg, and the object of the game was to protect your balloon while trying to stomp on and pop everybody else's balloon. It was a very Darwinian game, survival of the fittest, every man for himself, except for a few timid souls who knew they could never win and committed balloon suicide by popping their own balloons first. The whole game was over quite quickly, with the biggest, toughest, strongest, meanest kid winning. And then a disturbing thing happened. Another class, this one of students with intellectual disabilities, was brought in to play the game. Balloons were tied to their legs. Instructions were read to them. 
And Jim Roberts said he started to get a sick feeling in his stomach at what he knew he was about to see. And then the strangest thing happened. They understood the idea that balloons were to be popped, but they got the dog-eat-dog part of it wrong. And they went about methodically, happily, joyfully helping each other pop the balloons. One little girl carefully held her balloon in place while a little boy popped it, and he held his balloon down so that she could have a turn. And when the last balloon was popped, everybody cheered. Everybody won. They just did the opposite. So, which game are you going to play this week? How are you going to keep score? And I think what Jesus would say is, keep score by how many people am I able to help? Just that. Whom could I encourage to shine? Who could I thank or compliment or recognize? Who could I brag about behind their back to other people? This week, just make it real concrete, pray for your competitor to shine. Now, a competitor is anybody that you compare yourself to. You see their success, their blessing, and it kind of automatically galls you. You feel inferior or jealous. Uh, so you want to do better than them. This week, identify somebody that's a competitor like that and commit to praying for them to flourish. Now, you may not feel like you want them to flourish, but you can't control feelings. Great thing about prayers, I can control praying for somebody. And you'll find a strange thing. I was challenged on this by a teacher a long time ago, and it struck me how liberating it was. There was a student in a class with that teacher who was smarter than me, and in my mind, he became my rival, the student. Every time he outdid me on a test, and that was every time I felt bad. And I realized instead of wishing he were to fail, I could pray that he would soar, and it actually felt really good to pray that way. There was a guy ahead of me on the tennis team, and he became my rival. And I realized that instead of wishing he could fail, I could pray that he would soar. And it actually felt good. After Nancy and I had dated three times, she went to a school 2,000 miles away, and I found out she was dating another guy, and he became my rival. And I really didn't like him. And then I realized that instead of wishing he could fail, I could pray he would fail. And he did. And it felt really good. But I digress. This week, pray for your competitor to just shine. And ask God in you to replace the toxic weed of envy with the flower of love. That's the plan. That's the community Jesus came to start. And we're going to go now to the communion table. And I want to end with just a word about the cross and envy. On a human level, envy is why the cross happened. We're told Pilate saw it was out of envy that the chief priests had handed Jesus over to him. Cain and Abel all over again. Jesus was loved and followed. He had charisma and power and authority and he could heal and he could teach. Religious leaders, people a lot like me, took no joy in him, but felt diminished, less than, 
And in their envy, they formed a plan to kill him. But Jesus had a plan to destroy envy. Jesus decided, I will be the object of the worst that envy can do. I will put myself in the place of Abel. It will be my blood spilled. But when your envy is spent, I will still be loving you. I will ask God to forgive. And the cross, this very cross where you think that you're defeating me is where I will be defeating envy by the power of love, holy love. Jesus did not do what anybody else would do. He did not protect himself. He did not avenge himself. He did the opposite. That was his whole life. God became flesh, king in a manger, savior on a cross. It's just the whole, the whole crazy story, the whole message of the Bible is just the opposite. He was crucified, lifted up, came into his kingdom with one condemned man on his right and one on his left. Can you drink the cup? And envy claimed one more victim. And he died and was buried. And normally, 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 the earth keeps its dead. Normally, their blood cries out from the ground. But on the third day, the earth did the opposite. And the tomb was empty. And love triumphed. And now you and I are invited into that circle of oneness at great cost. We don't have to be puffed up. We're loved. Heavenly Father, thank you for your love for us. Thank you especially for Jesus and the, uh, the gift of the cross. Help us now as we come to the table, as we share in the bread, the body that was broken, and the cup, the blood that was shed. For us to be so flooded with love that there's just not room for anything else. Help everybody in this room not to leave it until by some touch, by some word, by some thought, they know, I'm loved, I'm loved, I'm loved. Pray in Jesus' name, amen.